Well, please turn with me back to the book of Esther. There's a little pile of church Bibles in the back, if you haven't brought one with you. And we've reached chapter 3 today, which is on page 411 in the Visitor's Bibles. And what an extraordinary passage it is to read on this day of all days, when we remember the horror of World War II and the hatred which poured out then against God's old covenant people. There's nothing new under the sun. Esther chapter 3, after these things, that is Esther's rise to the position of queen consort and Mordecai saving the king's life. After these things, King Ahasuerus raised Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamdatha, and exalted him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So the king's servants who were at the king's gates said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's commands? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to him, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Judean. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But it was contemptuous in his eyes to lay hands on Mordecai alone, because they'd made known to him Mordecai's people. So Haman sought to destroy all the Judeans, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerosh. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerosh, someone cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerosh, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to leave them untouched. If it please the king, let it be written that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the king's business for them to put into the king's treasuries. So the king took the signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamdatha, the enemy of the Judeans. And the king said to Haman, the silver is given to you and also the people. Do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over province after province and to all the officials of people after people, to province after province in its own script and to people after people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to slay, and to annihilate all Judeans, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province after province, proclaiming to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly with the word of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. If ever there was a moment in this dark, dark history of God's people which has the power to haunt your dreams, surely this is it. This morning we meet a man so lost to hatred that he sits down to play dice with the devil. We see the whole bureaucracy of the world's empire swing into action with ruthless efficiency to implement the genocide of every Jewish believer, man, woman, and child across the known world. But there is one picture here so chilling that it ought to keep you awake tonight when your head hits the pillow. It really is the stuff of nightmares. And it's the moment in verse 10 when the king of all lands takes the ring off his hands, the one ring by which he has authority to rule all the earth, and he places it into the palm of a man hell-bent on the destruction of everything God loves. What could be more terrifying than almost limitless power being placed into the hands of one who has wholly given himself over to the forces of darkness? Well, Esther chapter 3 wants to face us squarely with a reality we don't always like to think of. There is a hatred in this world that runs terrifyingly deep, a hatred of God himself and of all his works and of all those who he loves and he claims as his own. And we need to let ourselves be swept along with the full terror and despair of this story if it's going to do the work it's meant to do this morning in our heads and our hearts. We have a tendency in our age to trivialize evil. We think of persecution as something that happens far away, perhaps something a little overblown by Christians here. We're nervous to talk too much about the supernatural. Maybe we're cynical as to how far the powers of darkness might go in their rage against Christ and his coming into the world to save. But Esther chapter 3 demands that we face those realities head on. First, in verses 1 to 6, it asks us to face a hate-filled void. 
Last week, we saw God save the pagan king of Persia through the courage and honesty of Mordecai, a low-ranking Jewish official living in exile. And yet, just when we expected him to be rewarded in verse 1, we saw an ancient blood enemy, Haman the Agagite, raised up to the right hand of the king and set on a throne above every other official in the land. And you would think that would be honor enough, wouldn't you? The highest throne. But there is a void inside Haman which craves for more than just power. He craves people's love and fear and respect to be seen and honored as above everyone else. There's a hunger inside many of us for that, isn't there? To be seen and respected. I wonder if you've felt those hunger pangs. Maybe it's the scariest truth about the devil himself. He was not satisfied with being exalted as a creature of God, an angel of light. At the end of the day, what he wants is to be loved and praised the way God is loved and praised. Well, we've seen already a kind of upside-down Messiah's kingdom in this dark human empire. Now, it's almost as if there's an inversion of the Trinity itself. We have the high king of kings, Ahasuerus, and he has been a mirror image of the true king of kings. He rules through selfish desire with a terrible mix of dangerous power and weak insecurity. And in chapter three here, he's painted as the careless king, entirely disinterested in his subjects. And now, seated at his right hand on a throne above every throne, sits Haman. And like all kings, Ahasuerus is jealous for Haman's praise because it reflects on him. He longs for him to be glorified, just as the true king of kings longs for Jesus to be glorified. And so Ahasuerus makes it a command, bow down and pay homage to the one who sits at my right hand. And then there's a third power at work who we'll meet soon enough. Haman very consciously seeks the help of dark supernatural forces. And I think that explains why Mordecai refuses to bow down. Clearly, he's willing to bow down before the king. If he works as some sort of lowly civil servant, he'll have to do that. We'll see Esther willing to bow to the king later on. But when it comes to Haman, he feels forced to draw a line in the sand. And the reason for that brave, brave refusal is never spelt out, but it's implied in verse 4. Mordecai has told them that he is a Judean. There is something about Mordecai's ultimate allegiance to the God of Israel that means he cannot bow down to a man like this. Now, we saw last time that these two, Mordecai and Haman, represent a much bigger and much older feud between the seed of the woman 
and the seed of the devil. It was a feud that burst into the open when Israel was only an embryo in the rivalry between two brothers, Jacob and Esau, one who despised God's promise of the gospel and one who would father God's promised seed. Well, Esau became the ancestor of a people called the Amalekites. And it was them, the Amalekites, Israel's own half-brothers, who became the very first nation to try and destroy them as a nation and to keep them out of God's promised land after they were rescued from Egypt. They made themselves enemies of the gospel, of God's gospel people, destroyers of God's saving work. And so God, in his covenant love for Israel, swore then to blot out their memory from the earth. A promise has been made. Well, generations later, the responsibility for acting out that blotting out of the Amalekites, that fell to Saul, Israel's first king, and remember last time, Mordecai's ancestor. But it was a battle that Saul ducked from in disobedience. He pulled back from killing Agag, king of the Amalekites, and the ancestor of Haman. And not only that, but Saul failed to take seriously that this was a holy war, a battle for the gospel itself. And so he did the one thing that God forbade in a holy war. He kept Agag's plunder for himself rather than devote it all to destruction. And so that is the shame which Mordecai, the Judean, carries in his ancestry. Remember that. Remember the plunder his people took and the battle they ducked. Because Mordecai remembers it, and he is not about to make the same mistake. It's not petulance, this refusal to bow, He cannot honor a man who represents the hatred of everything God loves. Well, Haman has to be told, doesn't he, that there is one man who won't bow the knee. And that's a nice touch, isn't it? There is such a sea of sycophancy and crawling that he actually can't even notice this one little act of defiance. The whole world is honoring him. But if one man won't, then for Haman, it's all ruined. (laughs) Because what that void inside him craves is total respect. And if human honor is what you need, well, you can never have enough of it to be secure. There is something very, very delicate about the need for human approval, isn't there? We saw it When the king was disobeyed, we saw it when his advisors were so terrified that their wives might dishonor them. We cannot bear to lose face. And so verse 5, that void inside Haman is filled with a consuming fury. It's not enough now to take vengeance on Mordecai. In fact, that idea becomes contemptuous to him. An ancient hatred has burst into flames, and now 
everyone that God claims as his own becomes a target. It is total war. Which brings us to verses 7 to 11 and a terror-striking obsession. Who is the man who the king of kings is about to hand the ring of power to? Well, this is a man who will stop at absolutely nothing to erase the people God loves. And what makes him so terrifying is that he is actually far more clued up to how the universe really works than your average modern atheist might be. Many of the enemies who we think of today as fighting the gospel are fighting blind. They've convinced themselves that there is no supernatural realm. And so they're playing with forces they don't even acknowledge or understand. But verse 7 tells us that Haman is not like that. He is all too well aware that this is a spiritual battle. And so he summons some sort of shaman or necromancer looking for guidance from that supernatural realm. He's looking for a propitious date in his superstitious mind when he can launch his attack on the Jews. And this someone casts lots for him, a kind of magic Persian dice called Pur, and they go through every single day on the calendar. The text makes it relentlessly repetitive. They cast it for day after day and month after month because the lot doesn't fall on a favorable date until they've gone through an entire year of their diary. And they land on the 13th of Adar, the date that forevermore the Jews will know as Purim. It's showing us, isn't it, that there is something satanic in this hatred. It's obsessive. A superstitious need to crush not just Mordecai, but his entire people. And having finally landed on the best date, he takes his proposal to the king with this dangerous mix of truth and falsehood. Notice he doesn't name the people he wants to destroy. And the careless king never even bothers to ask. But Haman paints a picture of a lurking threat as if these people are hiding everywhere under the bed ready to damage the kingdom at any moment, which is provably untrue, isn't it? Yes, these people are scattered across the entire empire, verse 8. Yes, they have their own laws. They live differently, and that will make them a target. But what have we just seen in chapter 2? Far from being a threat twice already, the pagan world has been blessed through this very people of God. This careless king owes his life to the man being painted here as a danger to him. It's twisted. But isn't that so often how the world tries to hurt God's people? It's as they do the right thing, as they stand up for what is good and loving and wholesome and true, that they're accused of doing the opposite, of spreading harm and hatred. I wonder if we've counted that cost. Have we settled 
for living as salt and light and holding up what is good, even if it means we'll be painted as dangerous and damaging for it. Well, in the end, it is the money which seals the deal. Haman plays to the king's greed, and he promises an extraordinary amount of silver, presumably coming from the plunder that they plan to steal when they liquidate all the Judeans. And it's an amount of money that the greedy king cannot refuse. The historians tell us that this will be about two-thirds of the entire annual income for the Persian Empire. And that's a big empire, isn't it? So don't think there in verse 11 that the king is turning the money down. Quite the opposite. Esther makes it very clear later on that her people were sold He's saying the silver is given to you for you to use as you see fit. Just make sure it benefits me. And the people, I couldn't care less about them. They are given to you to do whatever you want with them. And so by verse 10, through a combination of lies and greed and dark malevolent forces, this obsessive, hate-filled enemy of the Jews is handed almost limitless power. And as the chapter closes, we see more clearly what he plans to do with it. In verses 12 to 15, there's one more facet to this darkness that the writer wants us to face. God's people are up against a hope-destroying power. The aim of this last paragraph is to eat away at any last vestige of hope that God's people might have had. And with that, any vestige of hope for the world itself. Because it's only now that the full horror of what he has planned gets driven home. The enemy is not interested in simply making his points or in one decent victory. He will settle for one thing alone, and that is total erasure of God's saving work in the world. Time and again, the text stresses the totality of the plan. Haman's edict is to be sent out to every satrap and every governor, to every province in the empire, translated into every language in the world, addressed to every people group in the world. All of humanity is to be implicated in this crime. All of them will have to get their hands in the blood. And what they have planned is a final solution to be implemented with all the efficiency of the most powerful state the world had ever seen. Think of what it meant to govern an empire this large. Persia had developed an incredibly capable bureaucracy, including this communication system in verse 13, which even the Romans later never managed to match. And so the sense we're meant to be feeling now as the Pony Express kicks into action and the documents go out is that this is unstoppable. And the orders they're carrying could not be clearer. It's not just to kill. Why say it once? They are to destroy and to slay and to annihilate all Judeans, young and old, women and children, all in one terrifying day 
around the world, not just the exiles, but even those back home in Jerusalem, even that comes under Persia's rule. Take no chances. We'll make sure that the word Christmas is never, ever spoken. And then one more gruesome detail. Plunder their goods. Every gold filling, every valuable piece of clothing, every trace of them. It's a story we've seen play out more than once through history, isn't it? What a passage for a day we remember the horrors of World War II. But why is that? Why has this one people group been subject to such intense, demonic, systemic hatred time and again? Well, I think the text hints at an answer. Notice when the order goes out, verse 12, the 13th day of the first month, which just so happens to be the night before Passover. The night before God first rescued this people and made them his own, his treasure. What about that command to take their plunder? It's almost like a deliberate attempt to undo the exodus, isn't it? Israel plundered the Egyptian oppressors. Now the pagan world is going to take it all back. Why is anti-Semitism a thing? Why does it exist? Why this intensity of hatred for this one people? Surely because the devil and his seed hate God himself and all of his works, and that will manifest as a hatred of everything that he loves and everyone that he claims. And today that means you, doesn't it? The church of Jesus, you are God's most beautiful work of grace. Perhaps it all seems very far away, and this is a hard reality to believe or accept, but if you are a Christian bought by the blood of Jesus, there are people and powers in this world who you have never met. They don't know another thing about you, and yet they hate you already with an intensity deeper than you will ever know, all because they hate him. Now, in this Old Testament age, God's most glorious saving work was this Exodus nation, the people of Israel, who he'd rescued from sin and death and made his very own. And with them stood all hope for the future. It's that which the enemy wants to erase. Choke the people of Judah now, and you choke the gospel itself. You choke all hope that through a king born from this race, God's saving love could extend to the rest of us. It might help, by the way, to see that our word Jew is actually a quite anachronistic word to use here. Hebrew only has one word, Judean, to tell us that these people came from Judah. They came from the Messiah's kingdom. And over the course of the exiles, these Judeans, this one little rump of Israel, they are all that's left 
carrying the Messiah's flame into the future. So much so that over time, through these exiles, the word Judean comes to represent all Jewish believers. And so in verse 12, in the ancient Persian way, Judah's death warrant is written into tablets of wet clay and it is stamped and sealed with the king's own signet ring. And then they get baked dry in the sun so that now that death warrant is literally set in stone. This is the law of the Medes and the Persians now. And that's the reality which will drive the rest of the plot. This order is irrevocable. Hope is dead. And with that, the careless king of kings, who has just signed away the lives of an entire people without even asking who they are, he sits down to drink and to feast with Haman at his right hand. I wonder if the clearest place that we see the king of love in this story is by looking at his mirror image. Outside is thrown into terror and grief and confusion. And inside the citadel, there he is. And he couldn't care less. So Esther chapter 3, it leaves us hanging on the brink of catastrophe. The deal is done. And although there are still 11 months to wait until that fateful night chosen by the dice, we're meant to understand that God's people are as good as dead already. And he's told the story this way because for a moment at least, we need to feel swallowed up by the darkness and despair because that is where every rescue story in the Bible takes us, isn't it? To a place so dark and hopeless that only God could ever possibly save us. Perhaps sometimes we get a teeny sense of what real hopelessness feels like. We think the age of the church is over. The world has moved on. It's a done deal. On the whole, though, I think we live in an age where sin feels rather small and trivial, not a big threat to us. We live in an age where the devil seems like a costume for Halloween, where real persecution feels like a story we hype up for the church prayer meetings, not a reality that we live in fear of. But chapter 3 faces us with a harsh truth. Our world is ruled by a deep, obsessive, supernatural hatred of God, hell-bent on erasing every trace of his saving work in those he loves and claims. And if by God's common grace that reality of that hatred is blunted here in our own peculiar time and place in history, well, we ought to be incredibly thankful for that. We're still protected here by laws that are better than we deserve as a society, by vestiges of Christian truth. But at the very least, I think this ought to put some fire into our prayers for Christians suffering today and for what could very easily become the case here in the West. A truce 
is not natural. This is not a normal state of being. Maybe we feel the traces of this war raging even inside us. An enemy who we feel powerless against, who wants to flaunt our sin in our face, rob us of our hope in the gospel, who tells us that still, by all rights, people like us are good as dead when faced with the justice of God. Well, perhaps if we've come face to face with that kind of despair, we're simply waking up to reality. The odds against our salvation really aren't great, are they? And that's where I think Esther 3 has something profoundly helpful to say. And it's a point that I think it's making implicitly all along. When everything is lost, know who's writing the story. I wonder if you noticed how many little hints there were in this chapter that even when the darkness swallows up God's people, it is ultimately the God of the gospel who's writing the story. First, there's the obvious point that we've had to wait until chapter three before this big threat to God's people even emerges. But for two chapters before that, God has been setting up the stage to tell the story he wants to tell, sneaking two hidden saviors into place. Then there's the question that kicks off the terror in verses three and four. Why was it that Mordecai was reported to Haman? It's because literally in verse three, he overthrows, repeals the king's commands. Now in chapter one, they claim that the word of the king of Persia could not be overthrown. But here is a man who speaks for another king. And what everyone wants to see in verse 4 is whether Mordecai's words will stand. This whole book is being framed as a battle over whose word truly stands forever. Is it the God who has sworn to protect his people and blot out the people of Agag? Or has he turned his back on that promise now that they are lost here in exile, suffering for their sin? Who truly rules this world? Is it the careless king? Or is it the king of faithful, never-ending mercy and love? Surely the next clue is the calendar itself. Haman makes one fatal mistake in this chapter, which he will never recover from. He chances his luck to the invisible forces behind those magic dice. But what he doesn't know is that the God of the gospel is sovereign even over the powers of darkness and chance. And so the minute he throws those dice, Haman is unwittingly placing this story entirely into God's hands. From now on, all of us readers will know that the timetable is his. From that remarkable coincidence that the letters go out on the eve of Passover to the 12 months that Esther and Mordecai now have to prepare a plan and screw up their courage, all of that is his. And it's the God who holds the dice 
who claims these people as his own. Even here in exile, they are his blood-bought children. So Ahasuerus might think that he's giving them into the hands of Haman, verse 11. But it turns out they are not really his to give. Right now, the enemy holds the ring of power, but keep your eyes on that ring. The God who gave it to him can give it to whoever he pleases. And so we enter now into the darkness and despair of this story as readers of the book, knowing that the God who writes their story is the same God who's writing ours. The God whose own son allowed himself to be sold like this for pieces of silver, who placed himself entirely into the hands of others, made vulnerable, powerless, to do with as they pleased, who was condemned by the dark powers of this world. But when all was lost, right at the moment when darkness had won, he brought about the death of death. And so when everything you can see in this world, when everything you can see inside yourself is so hopeless that only God could possibly save you, we can face reality knowing that he already has. Sin and evil were defeated before they even knew the battle had begun because the king of love has conquered and the story we're living through belongs to him. Well, let's bow our heads. Loving Father, thank you that sometimes your word wakes us up to realities we prefer not to dwell on. And so as we face up to the depth of hatred in this fallen realm, for all that you love and all that you're doing in Jesus, we want to pray for your protection. For brothers and sisters today, facing bitter opposition for your name's sake, Lord, have mercy. For our own work here in Edinburgh, for the church that we long to build, to lift high the name of your son, Lord, have mercy. And let us not be put to shame. For our own souls, bought by you at such a cost, Lord, have mercy. And protect us from an enemy who would love to see your children fall back into shame and fear and disgrace. Thank you that although he is very real, you have broken the devil's claim over us. Thank you that Christ is king. Thank you that his saving work can never be erased. And so we ask it all to the praise of his eternal grace. Amen.